please take God's word. Turn to Matthew chapter number six this morning. Matthew chapter number six. If you will, we'll stand for the reading of God's word out of reverence for it. Matthew chapter number six. Verse number nine. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us unto temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You don't need to turn there. I want to read a portion of Luke chapter number 11 and verse number 1. This is a corollary passage, probably not the exact same account. Um... But the Lord's Prayer is there as well. And you read this preface to it in verse number 1 of Luke chapter 11. Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place when he ceased. That one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As John also taught his disciples. So he said to them, when you pray, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And it continues the exact same model in that portion. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege it is to enter in boldly to the throne room of grace. And I pray that we've done that. God, I pray that we're there. I trust that we are. In Christ and in Christ alone, we know that there's no other avenue, no other wall, no other um, road traveled, Father, and that we could climb up or walk through um, or a mount of space, Lord, that we could travel um, to take us into the very presence of God outside of the blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We recognize, Lord, what had to be accomplished for this to even be possible, for your presence to be among us this morning, so we glorify and praise and honor you today for that. Father, we pray for your help in this moment. We pray, Lord, that you would just take this time and use it for your glory. Father, we pray that you would just, by your power, by the power of your spirit, just um, take the word of God to places, Father, um, that we don't even know we have in our hearts. God, that the word of God would just have full and free reign in our lives, um, that the word of God would have free course as it did in Thessalonica, God, in the hearts and lives of those people that are listening now. God, we pray that you would do the unthinkable, Father, what we believe is incapable, we pray that you would accomplish that, Father. We pray that if sinners are here that are unsaved, that the gospel would go forth into their hearts, Father, in a way that brings dead men to life. God, and if we're, for those who are saints this morning, that you would just take the word of God and give life to dead areas, Father, that are there. Father, that we would be sanctified in our Lord, that we would recognize the reality that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, and we would walk in that newness of life. Um, dominion of sin would have no longer power over us as we yield ourselves to um, the righteousness of God, Father. So would you go with us now, Lord, and teach us to pray. God, this is one of the most difficult duties, great privileges that we have. But it seems to be one, Father, that the saints have struggled with throughout the ages, and no doubt we do as well. So, Father, would you teach us to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Thank you. 
Once again, I know that some of you are visiting. We began months ago, almost a year ago now, um, a trek through the book of Mark, but we've taken a season. And where we're talking about the nature and the character and the activity of the church. Um, I think it's instrumental in our day. I think it's instrumental um, to us operating as a body the way that um, Christ died for us to do and to be what Christ died for us to be. We've talked about the body. We've talked about um, the bride. As the bride of Christ, we covenant with our Lord. He sanctifies and sets us apart for His purpose and His work as a body. Um, speaks a lot to the activity. We are to be unified. We are to come under the authority of the head of Christ. Um, we are to, uh, in our diversity, created in the Lord and gifted in um, vast ways for His honor and for His glory. Um, we are to manifest a unity and a maturity um, that honors Christ. We are to unify as the body of Christ under the banner of Christ. Why? So that John 17, the Lord's Prayer, would be answered that um, the world would see uh, the unity of the church and it would manifest the unity even between the Father and the Son. So to be disunified or, or to not be unified is actually to deny in practice that the Father sent the Son and that the Son willingly went from the Father for that purpose. So it is our goal here at Christ Bible Church um, in my ministry, as Paul said, to present every man mature in Christ. Thus we strive for, for that unity. And then last week we began to look at the building. Um, that's an illustration that the Lord gives us, some imagery to teach us about ourselves. And the building is the temple that the New Testament church is um, under this age, in the church age, under the new covenant, um, brings to life much of the physical characteristics of the Old Testament covenant people of Israel. And we see that same, we see those great parallels. And that in the Old Testament, the temple was the dwelling place of God, and the New Testament um, is also the dwelling place, the temple is the dwelling place of God. That God, in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, saves a people, sanctifies them for Himself. They enter into covenant with Him, come together, unified and mature in Christ. How do they do that? By literally being the dwelling place of God. It is the place where He manifests His presence. I mean, it is the place where people will look and see the very character and nature of Christ. And thus, it is the place where, um, and in that imagery, we learn a little bit about the activity that we should engage in. And there's probably a more logical way to go through it in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 to begin with the apostles' doctrine, but there was an urgency in my soul um, and in my own life um, to think on prayer and to give a few weeks, possibly, um, to the activity of prayer. Um, I think that if there's an area that's lacking in my own life and possibly in yours, it's prayer. Um, I think that um, from speaking to you and my passion and, and the nature of this church, we're unified in doctrine for the most part. Um, there's various things that I think there's liberty in, and, and we, uh, you know, we, we just strive with our weaker brethren, or we as weak brethren strive with the stronger brethren, and we love one another as Christ loved us. And we labor in the Lord because we love the gospel more than we love ourselves. Thus, we lay certain things aside, but the gospel, uh, I hope and pray, is preeminent in this church. That we adhere to the gospel, we adhere to the doctrine of Christ. We we are Bible lovers. We are conservative in our theology. We we love the Word of God, and we're going to protect it with everything that we have. Um, but doctrine is not everything. Um, it should be, but it's not. And it's not because you can hold to the Bible and you can hold to doctrine, and you can esteem the Bible as high as. Um, 
Anybody else does. And you can walk away with false teaching, and you can walk away as the church at Ephesus, um, who had everything doctrinally sound, were orthodox in their teaching, um, and they lost their first love. That there's a mutual, that there is a, a an interdependent, a codependent uh, relationship between between communion with God, between the Word and prayer. Um, one depends upon the other, and the other depends upon the other. You know, so then when we talk about prayer, we must talk about the Word, and when we talk about the Word, we must talk about prayer. I mean, the Word of God dictates how we approach the Lord in worship, and, and as well as in spirit. But there, it's just that, you know, we, we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And, and I believe that the term there, spirit, is not speaking of the spirit of God in John, but our spirit, that the spirit and truth come together and they, they, they relate one to another and they commune with the Lord according to the truth of God's word. What scares me to death is that, 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 that while it may not be true today, that, that there is a, a, a danger in the coming days in the life of our church to lean very theologically and doctrinally um, heavy. And that's a blessing. It is. It is. Um, but if our doctrine does not dictate our love for the Lord and the activity that we engage in, then our doctrine has gone no farther than our brains and has not reached the inner man. And it has not produced. If it does not produce something in us and make the Word of God even effective... You see, that's what Paul was praying in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, that the Word of God would go forth with power and it would have free course and free reign. That oftentimes the effectiveness of the Word um, is, is even contingent upon um, the prayers of the saints if they submit themselves to the will of God. Um, that, that, that the Old Testament teaches us that we are to approach God and one of the ways we dwell with Him and communion with Him is not only in accordance with the truth of God's Word and we follow through the temple, um, across the brazen laver and even to the incense of the altar and, and these things. We not only follow the prescription um, in, in, in black and white detail, but we do it with our spirits engaged um, with the Word of God. We do it um, with, with, with our inner man engaged with what's happening so that we can see the meaning of these different, different things. Thus, we give ourselves for a few moments to prayer. Um, to prayer. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. My desire this morning is simply that the Lord would teach us to pray. That He would stand up as the great teacher this morning by the power of His Spirit and utilizing Christ's Word would just um, enable us and teach us how to approach Him in prayer and in communion that He might dwell with us. And I teach on this and I preach on this you know, because this is an area that I struggle in. Prayer is difficult. Theologian after theologian, Christian after Christian, refer to it again and again as the hardest work. Um, preaching is second according to Luther. You know, preaching is second according to many of the men throughout the ages. It's dreadfully difficult oftentimes to persevere in the prayer. Uh, one of the reasons, I know this is simply from experience, but also it's the Scripture's testimony. The disciples needed to be taught. In Luke chapter 11, they come to our Lord and they ask Him after they've seen something in prayer. The Lord Jesus Christ concludes the prayer time and they come to Him and there's something that just grips their minds and their spirits about the way the Lord prays. Maybe it's because they had never prayed with such fervency. Maybe it was because they had never approached the Lord in such a way. Uh, maybe it was just the theological nature of it. Maybe it was just the intimacy that they had with the Lord. Maybe it was as if that man prayed and the very presence of God um, fell upon him as Jesus Christ took 
um, his petitions and made them known to the Lord. Something about it um, made the disciples perk up their interest and, and ask him. John teaches their disciples to pray. Lord, would you also um, teach us how to pray? Out of all the things they could have asked, um, that was the thing that really piqued their interest the most. And commentators, Christian after Christian, have um, indicated that very thing. There's a thousand things that would have been right for them to ask the Lord. And the one thing that we have recorded in the pages of Scripture was, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Thus we endeavor in the sermon to do that, that the Lord might teach us to pray. You know, the difficulty of preaching a sermon on prayer is the same difficulty I had last week. Um... You preach to be devoted. You preach, you preach and you exhort and you encourage and you just cry and you, and you just want the Lord to you know, exhort us to pray. And, and there's two dangers often. There's two dangers. That it's such a hard work that you may go home after the sermon and there's such a burden laid upon us to pray and we don't know how to pray that we throw up our hands and we recognize we'll never be able to pray. You know. So what's the point? May that not be the reality in your soul from last week or today. But there's another danger. And that's to go home and try to find seven tips to, to a better prayer life. You know? It's to go to the totally other extreme and think that there's something in you um, that could just make yourself better. You know? And that if you follow these seven steps or these, tip, uh, these ten tips, um, that it'll just bring you into closer communion with the Lord. And what I don't want you to do is to go home and think that this is so high and lofty that I'll never receive it, and thus I don't strive. But at the same time, I don't want you to go home and think that I can do something better and be better. That that's not the goal of, 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 of teaching and preaching on, on prayer because we, in our essence, can't do better. You know, the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 and verse number 11 went and he prayed, and he did much better than the other guy supposedly, you know? He had a very high and lofty prayer, but his spirit was not connected with the Lord, and he approached the Lord with much pride. Um, thus, I, I don't want you to go home and think, man, that you can, you can do better or be better in and of your own strength. That's not the goal of, of prayer. I'm going to give you the goal of this morning of prayer, in my own opinion, and you can take it or leave it. You, know? you try to define prayer, and it's like you get 10 guys and they have 10 different definitions, so I'm about to give you number 11 um, in just a moment. But I think that the goal of prayer this morning, um, and there's a hundred goals, again, that, that, that are, that, that's the thing. Prayer is so, it's not monolithic. It's just so vast and, and, and exhaustive that we could spend all of our lives studying about prayer and we could have books after books after books trying to define what it is and how to approach it. Um, thus, to try to approach it and define it in ten words or less is an impossibility. Um, but I think that one of the goals of prayer, not defining prayer, but one of the goals of prayer is not to be better um, but it is simply to be honest. That's it. What is prayer? Well, the Westminster Shorter Catechism um, defines it like this. Prayer is an offering up to God, or uh, is an offering up of our desires unto God. For things agreeable to His will. In the name of Christ, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. But a most basic definition or a most basic goal, I think, for our prayer life would be simply Psalm 62, verse 8. Trust Him at all times, ye people, pour out your heart before Him. But the sacrifice that is acceptable to God, Psalm 51 that Vance read this morning, is uh, I don't desire sacrifices, you know, or burnt offerings. The sacrifice that He desires is, a, is, a, is a, a humble, a contrite heart, a broken spirit, an honesty before God. Psalm 10, verse 17, Lord, Thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Will Thou wilt prepare their heart. 
Thou wilt cause thine ear to hear. John Bunyan, that great man of God, imprisoned for his faith and wrote one of the most phenomenal books outside of the Bible um, for us to, to glean from. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress writes these, Prayer is a sincere, sensible, affectionate pouring out of the heart or soul to God through Christ in the strength and assistance of the Holy Spirit for such things as God has promised or according to His Word for the good of the church with submission and faith to the will of God. That prayer, regardless of all the trappings that come with it, must first be born out of humility towards God and out of a fear of God and out of an honesty of God with God. A devoted prayer life is not simply saying the right things. It's not having the right frequency. All those, those things are good. Or maybe it is saying the right things. Let me tell you what the right things are. The right things are your things. The right things are laying your heart bare before a holy God. It is coming to Him as you are, and it is coming to Him as He is. And that's the admonition and the warning at the beginning of Matthew chapter number 6. He says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Can you imagine some of the Pharisees coming later and they, they heard the great and glorious uh, prayer request of these men, uh, supposed men of God as they stand on the corners and they pray for certain things and then weeks later or months later, somebody that heard say, man, they never really, God never answered that prayer at all. Um, is there an ineffectualness or an incapableness of God to answer those things when in honesty, in all honesty, God answered His prayer? Remember, prayer's desires before a holy God. What did He get? He got exactly what He desired. God gave Him what He wanted, which was the acknowledgement of men. And that some of the greatest judgment and chastisement upon a man is, is when God gives him over to himself. So Pharisees stand there with all the right words and with eloquence and doctrinally sound and with uh, external devotedness, yet, yet they, stand there, they stand there apart from God and meaningless and useless. And he argues and he urges you that when you pray, don't be like them. Don't be like a man wearing a, a mask on a stage. The hypocrite, it's a term that, that literally um, speaks of the theater, of a man pretending to be something that he's not. That they would wear masks and, and be something that they truly weren't for the purpose of entertainment, to manipulate the emotions of the audience or, or whatever reason for the money. There's a lot of preachers and pastors and Pharisees like that. Maybe I've been that on many days. You know, try to manipulate the, the, the external surroundings or even try to manipulate God by, by great and glorious sounding exhortations when all God really wants is for you and I to be honest. To be honest. Don't be like the, don't partake in the sin of babbling, you know, with vain repetitions while refusing to give your hearts to God is the um, exhortation. No, prayer is simply an expression of the desires of, 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 of a man or a woman in honesty with God. And that's why prayer is not monolithic, but it's so vast and exhaust. And that's why you can't define prayer. Um, like you, you may have walked away with last week as, as, it, as if it's just asking. It's not. It's more. It's confession. It's adoration. It's praise. It's, it's thanksgiving. It's intercession. It's supplication. It's asking. It's, it's all these things. And if it's those things, then it's just honesty in those things. It's humility in those things. 
If it's confession, it's honesty about ourselves. That's why in 1 John 1, 1.9, he says, confess your sins before God. The term confession literally means to be in agreement with God, to say what God knows about you and to approach God as He is. You know, if it's adoration, it's, it's praise from the heart. It's born out of a, a, a thanksgiving and a gratitude for Him that's it's, it's been accomplished on behalf of Christ. If it's intercession, it's out of a true desire for you to intercede for someone else that God may be active and work and build up His kingdom in their life. That, that This morning, if, uh, if you walk away with nothing, and if God teaches us nothing else, may He teach us that, that prayer is simply um, our, our, our desires, our hearts laid bare in honesty and humility before the Lord. That when men stand up here to pray and that when men you stay in your homes and you want some practical advice, um, I beg you not to be a hypocrite. You may not need to say everything that's in your heart because of the hearers that are around you. You may not need to confess even some of the, the, the great sins of your soul and you probably shouldn't in this context. But, 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 but at the end of the day, may, may the desires that you pray and I pray be born out of a, a heart of honesty towards God. And, and may we not be like the hypocrites who stand on the corners or behind pulpits or in lecterns or, or on the couch in the home or this place or that place and... And um, we try to manipulate God or manipulate those around us with our eloquence and our, our doctrinal soundness and our fervency because we, we influx our tone at the right points and this and that, you know? Peer pressure is a great thing and you can manipulate men to do a lot of things through your eloquence. Uh, but we don't desire that here. Uh, we may fall into that trap many times because we're men. And we repent of it often. Um, but may God be at work because of the great desires of our hearts. Thus, he begins, pray in this manner. The disciples come to him and they recognize that, I think. Maybe their um, desires were virtuous. Maybe they weren't. I don't know why they wanted to know how to pray. Maybe they wanted to be like the Pharisees on the street. I don't know. Or maybe they had a genuine desire to know how to reach the Lord and to take hold of him like in Isaiah 64 and verse 7. Uh, maybe that was their true desire. I don't know. They were immature like me on a lot of days and ask a lot of good things for the wrong reasons, but maybe they had the right reasons. And maybe um, you today too um, seek the Lord to teach you how to pray and to commune with Him. Um, the first thing that you must do is come to Him in hum humility, um, being honest with God that I don't know how to pray. You know? And you know what, God's He kind of knew that. And that's why in Romans chapter 8, He says that when you don't know how to pray, I pray for you. Jesus Christ intercedes for you. The Spirit of God comes with groanings which cannot even be uttered, that you have a, a, a great high priest at the uh, right hand of God the Father who's continually making intercession for you. That yes, that, 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 breath is, 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 that prayer is somewhat like the breath to a, a human um, as, as prayer is to the Christian life. But oftentimes we come out of the womb and you see it um, oftentimes in the hospital that even babies sometimes need help breathing. They need, to taught, they need to be taught how to uh, breathe. They need to be put on mechanical devices and assistance from even other people. Why? Because their lungs just aren't strong enough. And maybe we're like a lot of those little preemie babies who aren't fully developed yet in our prayer life. And thus we come to Him this morning with just a total humility, being honest with God, even as a pastor saying, on a lot of days, Lord, I don't know how to pray. Would You teach me how to pray? Would You teach me how to pray? Thus he enters in in Matthew chapter number 6 and verse number 9 and he says, pray like this, in this manner. This is a model. It's not, he doesn't say repeat this as vain repetition. He just argued against that. But he gives us a model prayer. And I would probably argue this morning that this model prayer is not so much um, a, 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 
a, a, a teaching you how to pray in a mechanical way, but um, a way in which God teaches you, Christ Himself, what you should desire. If prayer is the desires of the heart made honest with God, um, at the end of this sermon, I may ask, is these your prayers? But really what I'm asking you is, is, is God so worked in your heart and your life to where this is the pursuit of your souls? You know? Like, is these the things that you desired in Matthew chapter 6? As you approach your heavenly Father and you pray to Him, is it vain babblings? Is it just uh, vain repetition? Um, is, it, is it hypocrisy? Um, or is it, or are these, the, has God so worked in your life and, and conformed you to His very image and put the breath of, of life in you, redeemed you such that, that it may not be in its fullness everything that you desire, but your pursuit is to desire the very things that God desires. That that's going to be the, one of the great goals of prayer as well. Uh, not only to be honest with God, but, the, but, 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 but in maturity... Um, conforming our desires to His desires such that our longings are His longings and that is why God actually answers our prayers and our pursuits. Why? Because um, we desire the very things that He desires. Thus, it correlates with God's will as our will and His will. As we pursue the Lord, we beg Him to change our desires to Him. So I'll ask, often say you should pray like this throughout the sermon or, or is, is this your prayer? And, and really what I'm asking is, is that as a believer and you examine your heart and your life, is this truly what you desire? Thus you pursue God in prayer for it. Trusting Him that He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And that He will. He will bring it to pass. Because it's His. So first thing we see is the address. We see that the address, and I would almost argue that the address is primary, it's essential, it's important. But not only do you come to God as you are, you come to God as He is. You come to God according to His character and His nature. Not according to what you think it might be. That if you want to improve your prayer life, then improve your knowledge of God. That if you want to pursue um, and believe God for things that are out of this world, then you must pursue and believe in a God who is out of this world. That to, that, that, that to pursue prayer is to pursue God in prayer, in, in the Word. That if you want to expand your prayer life, then expand your vision and reality of God in your mind and your thinking. Why? Because, um, because prayer depends upon relationship. It depends upon the relationship, right? I mean, how many people have you asked for something that you did not know? But let's say that you didn't know that. You did know them, but you still ask them, right? Like who that person is would dictate what you asked, right? You may not know Kevin on the other end of the line who's trying to, you know, um, trying to take more money on your phone bill than what you deserve, you know, or what you paid for or signed up for, uh, but you're going to ask him some things. But it's not going to be intimate. It's not going to be this or that. You're not going to ask him for things that you would ask your wife for. That husbands and wives have a special relationship and fathers and children have a special relationship and that in that knowledge and in that intimacy it brings before us requests that we would make known to them that we would not make known to anyone else. Thus, the more knowledge that we have of God and in intimacy, the, 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 the more vast that our prayer life will be. 
the more manifold and colorful that it will be. Why? Because you learn something about His holiness or you learn something about His love or you learn something about His grace or you learn something about His character and His nature, His justice, His, His righteousness, this and that. You find a nuance about God as you're reading the Old Testament or you find a nuance about Jesus Christ and His affections and His character in the New Testament and it just opens your mind up and thus it's like, man, like if He's, if he's that, then I should ask for this. You know? Like if I have a good father, if I have this or that, like if he's that and I'm that to him, then why in the world wouldn't he give good gifts to those who ask? Thus he, he teaches us, Jesus teaches us to, to approach um, God as our Father in heaven. That he is a father to those who are his. That if you've entered into a, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, and the Spirit of God has wrought new life into you, then Jesus here espouses that you have entered into a relationship this morning that you did not know before. That He is your Father by virtue of adoption. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. But as many as received Him, to them He gave right to become the children of God. James 1, 18. You were begat by the word of truth. Ephesians 1, 5, you've been predestined under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ Himself. That when you get to the New Testament, not that it's not contained in the Old Testament because it's definitely there, but in the New Testament form, when Jesus Christ comes on the pages of Scripture in His own preaching and throughout the entirety of the New Testament, the fatherhood of God explodes. J.I. Packer um, writes these words, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find how, how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his Father. If this is not thought that, a thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. He goes on to say, For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God, he says. End quote. Which really speaks of his goodness. That God is good. Yes, um, God is also king. God is also ruler of all creation. God is also, in a common sense, the, 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 the authority that governs all the world and His goodness is extended to the ends of the world and the nations, to all people and to all of His creation. Um, Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all and His tender mercies are over all of His works. But there's a special love extended to those who are His children. In Christ. Manifesting a fatherly and an unfathomable goodness. And he rejoices in doing well to them that delight in his mercy. And that's why he says to you and to me, call upon me in the day of trouble. That's why he says, I will answer thee. That's why he says, open thy mouth wide and I shall feel it. That's why he says, let me hear thy voice for it is sweet. That he's faithful. And that he fulfills all his promises to his children. John fourteen thirteen, And whosoever you shall ask in my name, that I will do. I'll do it. Mark eleven twenty four. Whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you'll receive them and you have them. That the act of prayer acknowledges God as He is. And that in Christ, He, God, the, uh, the, the King and great judge of all the earth now becomes the Father. Otherwise, we would not run to Him, but from Him. Otherwise, we would shudder in His presence other than enter in boldly to the throne room of grace. It's, a, it's by virtue of this relationship that He inclines His ears to hear us. Psalm chapter 5 and Psalm 103 verse 13. That He takes care of our needs and He gives us good gifts. And the same God um, who created us and stands as judge of all the earth now 
creates in us and, and prepares our hearts to incline His ear to us. This God whom James says, draw near to Him. That in our flesh and in our sinfulness could never do. How fearful of a task to walk into the holiest of holies in which in Isaiah 6, even the angels cover their eyes and all of their righteousness with their wings. Who could not stand in His presence in the full substance of His glory. God commands us to come to Him. How? As a Father. In Christ by virtue of the resurrection, by virtue of the death and the blood and the atonement. He chooses the term Father. Father. That there's a reality in our lives now that if we know Him as that, that there's no amount of infirmity or blemish. There's no amount of anything that could keep Him from us. Why? Because we are in Christ and for Him to deny you and I in the fullest sense. Why He may deny certain prayer requests because of the ignorance of our hearts or, or maybe even the waywardness. He will never fully ever deny us because to do so would be to deny Christ. So He says pray. Pray as a child to a father. Maybe because it's the most intimate relationship and we all know what that's like. So the question would be is how do I approach Him? How do I approach Him? If I'm coming honest with myself in Christ with this great and fearful one, how do I approach Him as He is? And in Christ, He's a Father. So approach Him, church, like He's a loving Father. And like you are a loving child. Not like the pagans who see Him as a merciless tyrant or a genie in a bottle and to get their will done on earth. He's not to be manipulated to get any of those things. He's a Father. And a father knows what's best for their child, so a father often says no, but a father often also revels in giving their children the desires of their hearts, especially when they're good for them. That that's it. That he's not playing games with you. He's not there to trick you. He's not crafty and he's not deceitful and he's not holding mysteries over your head because he gets some kind of cynical joy out of it. He's a father ready to give good gifts to their children if they'll ask, especially that of the Holy Spirit. But not only is He a Father, He's in heaven. He's in heaven. So He's not just like a Father like us. He's more than that, right? So we qualify the Father uh, from being just a, a, a normal, everyday Father to a Father that is in heaven. Whenever I talk about heaven, and I think whenever Jesus speaks of heaven, not only here but in Luke, I think He's not just talking about locale or location. I think it's more than He seats, uh, He's sitting in the seventh heaven. I think it's more than He's just above the earth. I think it's more than just um, He's in this certain place and you need to pray um, towards the west or towards the east because that's the way He lives. I think that whenever the, oftentimes the term heaven um, is used to describe the very character and nature of God that He's seated there and that means something about who He is. That Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. It teaches us that God is capable. It teaches us that He has... Uh, the ability to, to, to do things that are out of this world, to speak things into existence, and even to revert and to convert um, what we know about reality. That He can exceed the laws in a supernatural way. And thus it should make us humble. It's similar to the idea of um, offices of authority. You know, oftentimes we refer to the President of the United States as, as His seat in the White House, the office. You know, we talk about Washington, D.C. as the seat of power. You know, that, that, that decisions are being made in Washington, D.C., that decisions are being made in the White House. 
And it is a, a, a reference to the authority carried with the office of the seat of the president. In a similar way, when we talk about heaven and God being in heaven, we speak of His authority and His ability and that which is His and that which He's capable to do. Thus, it should humble us as we approach Him. As a Father, but also as Creator. An able one. Capable one. As Ecclesiastes 5.2 says, Don't be rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. It is that, therefore, let your words be few, he says. Um, that we should approach God, that while our prayers should be abundant, we should think about who we are in the presence of before we bring such prayers. That it shouldn't just be vain repetitions and inherent babblings and and a grocery list of this and that, that we should consciously think with an effort about who we are about to approach as we enter into the very throne room of grace and ask questions such like, is this congruent with His character? Is this who He is? Would He even um, give something like that being who He is? Thus it sets the stage for how we're to approach God. So before he ever gives a petition, he says, this is who I am. And before you ever give a petition, you should probably ask the question, who, who am I approaching? Because it will dictate what we ask. Petition one. Petition one. There's six petitions here. The first three seem to be vertical or Godward. The last three seem to be horizontal or manward. But all flowing out of the first three, which is the Godward. He says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be our, your name, or hallowed be thy name. I'm going to often refer back to the King James. There's no doubt about that. Um, that's just what that, the way I've memorized it. Uh, our Father which is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That that's the first petition. What should I pray for? Or maybe we could ask, what should I desire? You should desire that God's name be hallowed. Hallowed. You know, sometimes people can look at this, and I've been guilty of that as well, and look at this and we think that this is just um, Jesus Christ and us. He's commending us to praise God, but it's more than that. It's more than that. This is actually a command. It's an imperative. It's something that you and I are to do. And interestingly enough, it's passive. It's not active. Meaning you're not the one that does the work, but God's the one that does the work. You're, you're simply to yield yourself to Him, to allow Him, or to permit Him to do the work as a, as a believer. It's similar to yielding your members of righteousness to Him. That God accomplishes something in you whenever you come to Him by faith and repentance. Thus, you're, you're, you're passive in that, in that sense. And God sanctifies and sets you apart um, for His work. He's the active agent and we're the yielding, the submitting one um, in the work of God. That, what does it mean to be hallowed? It literally means to be separate. It's a name. It's, it's a word we distinguish one thing from another. It's... Um, everything and everyone uh, have their own name and it distinguishes. That's what the name is. It literally means to set apart and we are to hallow His name. That in name comes, the, especially in the Old Testament, and particularly from God, is His essence. It reveals His character and His nature of what He is and who He is. Thus, His name is to be hallowed or set apart or sanctified in our, our lives. And God commands us to do that. God hallows Himself upon a people. Um, that he buys out of the world for himself. Ezekiel 36 and verse 23 says, um, I will sanctify my great name. I'll set it apart. How are you going to do that, Lord? My name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in your midst, and the nations shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to do this so the world knows that I'm God. I'm going to sanctify myself. How, says the Lord, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. 
For I will take you from among the nations, gather you from out all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean and cleanse you from all your filthiness and from idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll take out the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land and I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. In verse 32 he says, Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God, but I do it for myself. The sanctification is a work of God where He sets apart a people to hallow His name upon them. Why? So the rest of the world will look in and see God's name being vivified, being displayed, being glorified, being honored in the work of grace and making men righteous and giving them a good nature and in the wisdom and the faithfulness and the truthfulness and the unchangeableness of God. That this should be your ultimate desire. Do you pray for this? That God's name would be holied and set apart upon your life. More than that, is that your great desire? It should be your and my utmost desire that through God's activity, we, He sets Himself apart in our life. That His name is attributes, that which makes Him, him, him would, would be that which makes us up, us in some sense, and that it would be made known to all those around us. Why? Simply because you lived in submission to Him. That this desire consists of a strong expression of love and a desire that God's name be glorified through our life. To pray such a prayer is to genuinely desire the advancement of God's reputation in the world. And that we're to pray that God would secure and preserve His character in us. In us. In us. This can only come through the activity of God. Thus, we are to pray for that. We are to pray that God's name would be hallowed and rule His rule and His reign every day in our life. But you are to pray that His will is to be done in your marriage and He is to make it distinctly different because He, he dwells in you. Man, you are to pray that God, you're, you're to pray that God would make me the man that you desire for me to be. How do I pray, Lord? I truly desire that and I pursue it in prayer. This is not a man-centered prayer. This is an abandonment totally of self. While you are an object upon which the prayer is focused, you are not the ultimate end of it. You, God is. You are to acknowledge that he, Him as He reveals Himself in His Word and with our hearts, with loving, fearful trust in, in the God of heaven and earth because He's our Father, with our lips and our heart joined together and we praise His name for His goodness and we yield ourselves to Him. Born out of a godly fear. A godly fear. Say, how in the world do you do this? It will only begin with a fear of God. Um, and not an ungodly fear, which views God solely as a, just a, a, a potential source of harm. Um, and just, which makes people cause you know, a step this way and that way. And just... But at the same time, it's, it's, it's not... I don't want to minimize fear because that's a part of it. Right? But godly fear is not just that. It's more than that. It's the result of viewing God as the greatest good. It may include a fear of God's wrath, but it's not limited to that. It's, it's actually the opposite of that. It's, it focuses on God's majesty. It's a, it's a fear that grips our affections, and it's a fear that manifests itself in a pursuit of holiness. Why? Because we know who He is. And we know that the most gracious thing that He could ever do is give us Himself, thus we pursue Him. In fear, but, in, but ultimately because we desire for His glory to be manifest because He's the ultimate good. 
That should be our prayer because that should be our greatest desire because that's exactly actually why we were created. Petition two, thus we pray thy kingdom come. And it begins to manifest that holiness and that set-apartness in our lives begin to manifest itself in the upbuilding of the kingdom of God. It's spe- I don't have a lot of time to spend on this, but the kingdom, it speaks of a, a common people. Of, of, of a same nation, a, a united under one leader. There's been many kingdoms established and even present in the world today, and all of them will rise and fall apart from Jesus Christ. But there's one kingdom that is often forgotten, and that's the Lord's, established with Christ and His disciples, empowered by the Spirit of God, and continues on to this day. The subjects are the church. God makes them citizens in a new nation. They're unified in Christ, and Jesus Christ is the King. It's the kingdom of heaven because it finds its origin in Him. He saves the men. He adds to the church. He sends forth ministers. The subjects are heavenly. They're born of God, not of man, nor the will of the flesh. The benefits of the kingdom are heavenly. The activity is heavenly. Thus we pray, we believe, we love, we exercise virtue. Our weaponry, our warfare is heavenly because the battle is in the spirit and in the mind and in, and in the, the spiritual realm, not with, uh, with principalities and powers and not with flesh and blood. It's spiritual, not carnal. The Christian life thus culminates in heaven because it's eternal. But there's definitely a battle to engage in here in the hearts and lives of men. That our great desire should be, so do you pray for the kingdom of God to come? More so, we should ask, is it our great desire that the kingdom of God would redound to the glory of God such that it is my daily pursuit in prayer but also in life to shine forth as the light that God created me to be that God may gather His church and the conversion of souls and the sanctification of the body such that God's name would rule and reign in all the earth. Say, I know that'll never happen. Yes, maybe so, but that should be our pursuit. That should be our pursuit. That He should be glorified in what we do as a church, not only as an individual. That should be our great desire. That God would be glorified in the church when He looks at our deeds and they show forth the praises of Him who hath called them out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That this people whom I have formed by myself, he says, for myself, they shall know, they shall show forth my praise. Isaiah 43. Thus the kingdom of God is God's preeminent purpose and means whereby God's name is hallowed so the Lord teaches us to pray thy kingdom come and desire for that to be your ultimate desire. If that be the case, is it far-fetched to think that this is essential? That this is a request for the success of the gospel in time and reality. That you and I, as we long for a world that's rid of sin, heartache, and injustice, we long for that ultimate kingdom to come in its culmination, in its final glory, where His rule is recognized among all creatures, and injustice and sin is put to death. God has promised this to happen, but in a sense, we are to live in that reality now. And thus this is a foretaste of that. That in a sense, the prayer is saying, are we not not there yet, God? 
Speaking of the final culmination that the kingdom that will commence on that great day should be our pursuit even this day. Just like in our individual sanctification, uh, we are to pursue Christ and all of His glory knowing we will never be that until that final day. But nonetheless, it's our pursuit because that's what He desires in us and for us. That there's a great and grand plan from Genesis all the way to Revelation and we are to live in reality of that even though we have not yet received that. And the things that God does here is a foretaste of that. Thus, He gives us hope. When we see a sinner converted or we see a person healed or we see God's promises fulfilled, we get a taste and and we begin to hope in faith for that great day. And it gives us faith for the battle. So we pray and we desire that God would advance His church and send forth capable, faithful servants, zealous to preach and to teach. And we desire and pray this position. Thus, it's our ultimate pursuit. Thus, we're to cherish the kingdom. We're to love the church. We're to continually stir each other up to good works. Why? Because that's what heaven will be like. That's what the kingdom will finally culminate in. And that should be our great desire, so the church should be here, our great pursuit. And not just this church, but the people of God. Um, His children. He's our Father. And again, to ask the question, is this your prayer? Is also to say, is this your great desire? And thus we move to thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Such an interesting phrase. Thus we pray for His will, not ours. That great and premier prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ as in His humanity He comes to the end of Himself in Gethsemane and He even prays, Lord, if it be Your will, let this cup pass for me, but if not, let Thy will be done. Let it be done. How? On earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? What means that the name of God might be glorified and His will accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. May the men do the will of God. May you and I do the will of God as heartily, as eagerly, as earnestly, and as joyfully, and as persistently as even the angels and the spirits of the just who have been made perfect in heaven. Say, how does an angel serve? That's how I should serve. That should be my pursuit, the residence of heaven. Angels, do the will of God with unfathomable willingness. Psalm 103, 20, Bless the Lord, ye His angels that excel in strength and do His commandments hearkening unto the voice of His word. They do it with reverence. Isaiah 6, 2, The angels cover their faces when they declare the holiness and the glory of God. They do it diligently and zealously in Psalm 104 when He says, Who makes His angels spirits and His ministers a flaming fire. They do it with inexpressible joy, willfully. Psalm 102, God wills His servants on earth as well to, quote, serve the Lord with gladness. Heaven, the servants of heaven never become weary, but they are always steadfastly doing the will of the Lord. So how should I pray? Like this. God, help me to do the will of God as willingly, as humbly, as gently, as diligently, but as zealously and joyfully and steadfastly as even the angels do, as even you require of me, even though we understand that it will never happen perfectly until we see you face to face, Lord. And whatever it be, I embrace that, Father, whether it be by life or by my death, whether it be um, the secret counsel of God or in His revealed will, whatever it may be, Lord, that's my great desire. That's it. Father, I think no greater of myself anymore other than you. 
Then give us this day our daily bread. So we move from that which is spiritual to that which is even temporal and that which is eventually going to be spiritual again. We don't want to be so super spiritual that we think, Lord, you know, um, you know I'm just going to be a monk somewhere. Um, hide away in a monastery and deprive myself of all these things so I can become a spiritual elite. Of course, it's good to seek God after temporal things. And I don't think bread here just literally means bread in a wooden fashion, but it can mean anything that sustains the body and life. That God's given good things to sustain you for the eternal things. Thus, it's right and good for you to pray that God would nourish you, that God would give you food, that God would keep your health, that God would keep your children, that God would keep your home, that God would give you peace and liberty within this world to honor God in the fashion that He has desired. This prayer would be similar, I think, just with a word of warning to um, Agur's prayer in Proverbs 30 and verse 8 and 9. Give me neither, he says, he prays this, and give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Why? Lest that I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Not that there's anything inherently wrong with riches, but he saw in his own life a and a, 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 a tendency to go to one, one place or the other. That if he had too much, he would become too comfortable with God and uh, too comfortable in his, 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 his life so that he would not have a need of God, therefore pursue Him. But at the same time, he says, Lord, do not deprive me of such things that would cause me to blaspheme You. In some sense, possibly because, uh, of course, it's sinful nature, but um, he understands that the Father gives good gifts to His Son. That he isn't just interested in having his needs met, but his desires to ensure that the name of God isn't profaned in his life. So God, give me whatever it is that, you, that I need sufficiently every single day to not be prideful nor neglectful or angry with you. And that'll look different in your life than mine. Why? Because I'm made of different stuff than you are. And my sins are, are different than yours are. So I pray daily that God sustain me in such a way and protect me from wealth and riches, but also from poverty if it stands in direct opposition to you and what you desire to accomplish in those first three petitions. So Lord, give me this day my daily bread. God, make me and sustain me with the strength in my, in my physical body to be a greater tool for your service. I think that this is what he's getting at. Give me that which alleviates anxiety and discontentment and promotes generosity, Father. Cultivate in me a character in which I have self-control and various other things and recognize that if anything comes, it comes from God and I'm blessed. Petition 5. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In some sense, he's saying this in this petition. Pray for this. Pray that the reality of the grace of forgiveness would be so potent in my life that it would cultivate it, that very same character that was in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thus, I would forgive others even as He has forgiven me. You know? God cultivates spiritual character in me, not only physical needs, but spiritual needs. God, that uh, may manifest so that you can hallow your name upon my life. Some have argued that this is a man who's uh, pursuing salvation by his own works, I don't think so. I think that Jesus here is referring to a converted man. Thus the grace that was extended to him in forgiveness should be extended to all other men. And it's a plea that God would cultivate that character in him. Is that your great prayer? Is that your great prayer? That there's a reality of forgiveness 
fully in Christ. But there's also, secondly, a reality um, in the believer of a renewal of fellowship in this verse. Right? That as Christians, we're saved by the grace of God, but we still sin. Thus, I, I think that the call here for prayer and desire is, is that as a child of God would keep short accounts with Him, and that we could pray faithfully, that even though my sins were fully and once pardoned by Christ Himself, God, I understand that a part of that grace is receiving pardon daily to fellowship with you. Thus, it should be your great desire to keep fellowship with God and communion with Him. Thus, you spend your time on your knees on most days, if not every day, and more times than once a day, um, bringing to God your petitions, often confession before Him. That your great prayers would be that God would sustain um, a continual communion with Him not hindered by sin. Thus, that's you, so that so much so that you pursue Him day in and day out because the last thing that you um, desire um, is to be apart from your God. Thus, when darkness enters into your soul and, and it's wrought upon your hands and in your feet and you carry um, the debauchery of your old life, you quickly um, are crushed with a contrite spirit and thus you run to Him once again in prayer. Is that your great desire? Is that your great desire? Then do you desire petition six, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in a sense here He's saying, and teaching us to pray, Lord, Keep us from temptation. I would prefer that you remove it altogether, Lord, but if not, would you give me the power to overcome? Father, you know that I'm weak and lowly. You know that I'm insufficient. You know that I'm unable. You know that the devil himself towers over weak, weak men like me and he consumes them like a lion or like a consuming fire. Father, would you be he that protects me and reminds me day in and day out um, when I'm crippled by anxiety or I am um, just, uh, just uh, prideful in my arrogance thinking that I can take to task the one who condemned all men in the human race. God, whom Jesus Christ had to enter into the world and destroy the very works of the devil when there was no man, no army, no country, no nation um, savvy or crafty or strong enough to stand up against the wiles of the devil. God, um, teach me that I am not strong enough and that, that you invite me in with other disciples and with the church itself and the weakness and the glory of the sufficiency of Christ so much that I would depend upon you daily to preserve and to keep me. But also remind me so that, that I don't have to be crippled by anxiety because the, he, he no longer has dominion over me. Why? Because in the death and the blood of Jesus Christ, His, his work was abolished. So let me live as He's a, a reality, but He has no dominion or power over me. Let me walk in the reality of dominion in Christ and being a slave to the Son of God instead of being a slave to my former father, the devil. God, help me. Help me. Mark chapter 14 and verse number 32, you read a powerful description of the Garden of Gethsemane. And our Lord um, enters into communion with our Lord and on that day. He's about to go to his temptation. I love this. He almost follows his exact same prescription. When he prays these words, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John on with him. 
and began to be troubled and deeply distressed, our Lord. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to the death, even to death. And he asked them to stay there and watch. So much anxiety rests upon his soul such that he even says, I feel like I could die right now, man. I'm going to pray. Would you, would you pray with me back here? He goes on a little farther by himself and he falls on the ground and he prays that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he says these words. If you have a red letter edition, this is in red. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found Peter sleeping. He found him sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping, man? Could you not wait? Watch just one hour. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he goes away. And in verse 41 it says he came back and he finds him asleep again. He says, are you still sleeping and resting? Finally, he says, it's enough. The hour's come. I'm here. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. The devil enters Judas himself and um, accomplishes the work through the instrumentality of a man um, to slay our Lord Jesus Christ. And Our Lord is just so watchful and understands the reality that's all around him in a spiritual realm. And these men have no idea. Thus they... They fail in prayer and in devotion to prayer. The thing I want to draw attention to is our Lord's prayer and our Lord's devotion to prayer. Not even necessarily the content of it. Man, we could spend a week on that, right? And how that relates to His nature and His character and how He even sees Him as Father and how He prays. And I I believe the Lord gave an answer. I I believe He got an answer from the Father. And how He did it so persistently. He goes back time and time again. But you notice after that just kind of the contrast between our Lord and and the disciples. It's pretty phenomenal that when you study the disciples later, they're all relaxed and cool and calm there. But it won't be long that they're crushed with anxiety and fear of the devil. And I almost think that their failure to persevere in persecution was related to their failure to persevere in prayer. But when you look at our Lord, He's sorrowful even unto death, sweating drops of blood. But until He gets to the cross and even for a portion of the cross, you don't see Him like that again. You don't see him perplexed. You don't see him in agony. His agony is in prayer, not in the persecution. And I almost think that he got the answer that he needed from the Lord. Like the apostle, when he's buffeted three times and he prays that it would be removed, Paul is content with the sufficiency of Christ as he receives answer from the Lord that this was best for him. But I have to believe that. I almost believe that the perseverance in, in, in faithfulness and, and in prayer um, was, was or in persecution and in accomplishing the work that Christ desired and the Father desired of Him was born out of an answer to prayer as He persisted, as in Luke chapter 11 uh, carries on, that we are to persist in prayer. And that, that the men fail. Why? Because their failure was not in persecution and handling that. Their failure was... Was, was failure in, pers- in pers- persevering in communion with God. And that oftentimes we just kind of, I think we discount um, suffering a lot of times. Or I think we, we, we kind of attribute it to some virtuous type of, uh, of uh, uh, persecution and opposition, you know. Me and I, you talk to, and maybe I've been there too, you know, and you have a, a, a contentious wife, and you're like, oh, you know, that's my burden. <laughs> you know, that's just the cross I have to bear. God said we would suffer. And it could just be because you're ignorant, you know, <laughs> and the way you talk to her, and this and that. And we contribute a lot of times. 
um, the sufferings of God or the, the, the sufferings that we go through in the world um, to virtuous motives. When I think oftentimes um, we suffer and fail in the faithfulness in the Christian life um, because we fail in the things that God requires of us, particularly in prayer. That there is good testing and there is faithful testing and God does test men, but I think that oftentimes that is, uh, we attribute more suffering of our own failures to persevere in faithfulness I mean, we attribute that to God's positive testing when we shouldn't. That God often keeps us in the midst of perseverance and, and keeps us in faithfulness as we continue to persevere in prayer. Why all this, Lord? For Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Why should this be Your desire? Because, Father, um, these words contain the reason for them all. To persuade the child of God, to persuade you and me that He will grant our requests. So we pray in faith, believing that God's our Father. And that if it's good for us, He won't withhold it. Because it's ultimately for Him. It's ultimately for His glory. So how do we avoid the hypocrisy? I think part of the key is in Matthew chapter 6. We continually commune with Him in prayer. As He is and as we are. We come in honesty, but we also come in humility, receiving God as the Word expresses, as a Father. And that's why He continually says and makes it clear that He refers to the fact that my Father seeth in secret. Uh, William Perkins appears and says, God sees and beholds things that no man can see, even the secret thoughts and desires of a man's heart. And such an awareness of the truth is one of the great keys to praying with a sincere heart. It's constantly to be in a in the presence of God. You say, we're always in His presence. He's omnipresent, I know. We're talking about an awareness of truth and reality that today, this morning, He's among us. Thus, you can't hide from Him. You can hide from me. You can hide from your wife. You can hide from your children, but you can't hide from Him. He's present among us this morning. And He implores you and begs you to come to Him as you are. That He receives sinners, not saints. He makes saints out of sinners. But you don't have to come this morning um, inherently thinking that you need to, um, you know, my children don't have to earn my love. It's inherent in the relationship. They don't have to earn my love. I pray they're faithful and I pray that they can bring me honor and they can bring me dishonor, but love will never be a question. Um, and that's the same with God. If you're in Him this morning, you come to Him with all your blemishes and all your sin and you bring it before Him as a child does to a father. Honest before God. Again, it's, we're not manipulating Him. It's not any of that. Um, you're not coming to Him to, to get. You're not a magician. Um, you're not a, it's not a genie in a bottle, this or that. You're just coming to Him as you are. And in Christ, He makes you something that you're not. And in Christ, He keeps you that exact same way. So quickly, an application. Are those your desires? Is that who you are? If they're not, then your first prayer should be a prayer of confession to God. Go and tell Him and run to Him. Say as David said this morning, O create in me a clean heart, O God. Restore unto me the very joy of Your salvation, God. Make me something that I'm not. Jesus invites you today to enter into your weakness that you may be made strong. 
And that in your insufficiency, you might find sufficiency to uh, sufficiency in Him. Which is amazing. Like, God doesn't revel in your strength. He's not looking for an alpha team or an alpha male. He glories in men who humble themselves and beg God to labor through them in the upbuilding of His kingdom. That's not to say that all godly men are effeminate and weak, but they're, they're warriors. Only if they're warriors for Christ on the right battlefield, shedding blood for the right reasons, for the right king and for the right father, building up the right kingdom, the kingdom of God. So today, men, today, women, yield yourselves to the King of kings and the Lord of lords and know Him not only as judge of all the earth, but as Father. So pray. Pray, saints, that you would remember that His power is made perfect in that weakness. Pray that the revelation of our weakness this morning would would, would aid us in being honest with ourselves and with God and not to pretend to be strong before Him or before others because you're not. You are weak and lowly men. You need to know that reality. Stop deceiving yourself and come unto Me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Stop working so hard and come unto Me. Are those your desires? Are those your desires? If they are this morning and you come to Matthew 6 and God just encourages you, I say run faster. Run after them. If those are it, then those are yours. If those are God's and those are good, run. Run fast and run hard, church. And don't look back. Don't spend your days biting your nails wondering if this is what I'm supposed to be doing or if this is who I am. Make it a matter of prayer to know that it is. Make it your business to know that you're living for God and that there's no other life to live. Persist with God in prayer until you know. You say, I can't do that. Yeah, He's your Father. Don't you think He would like for you to know as a good Father what you're to do with your life and how you're best able to serve Him? Don't sit around in anxiety wondering if this is who I am or this is what I'm to do. Pursue your Father. He'll give it to you. I have no doubt. I would also encourage you to pray again according to His promises and His character. You say, I want to have a deeper life. Then pursue Him. Pursue Him. Again, how do you pray? You can only pray with what you know. So to know God deeper is to have a deeper prayer life and to receive more from God because of His faithfulness and your faithfulness to Him. Thus, church, pursue the truth. Pursue God in it. Run after Him and look for Him heartily and wholeheartedly. To know God is to know what to petition Him for. Say, how do I pray? How is that practical for me? Take all these petitions and just apply them to any realm of life. Okay? Say, man, I want to know how to pray for my children. Pray this. Pray, Father, I have six children. And whom, on best days, I don't know how to lead. You know? I have a family and a home. God, I just teach me. Teach me how to pray. God, teach me how to stand before them. Teach me what they need to know. Father, I come to you recognizing that I am inadequate and insufficient for the job you've laid before me. God, I don't know how to pastor a church. Father, I don't know how to be a husband. I don't know how to be a career man. Father, I've been so laid with sin for most of my life that that's the the default position. Father, I come to you humbly and just honest. I don't know what I'm doing. God, would you teach me? Would you teach me how to love my children? Would you teach me how to be a father like you're a father to me? Lord, would you hallow your name on their lives? Father, would you just make them 
God, would you make them like you made me? Would you just give them life, Father? Would you just help me to love the gospel so much that I present it before their eyes every single day? Father, would you just save them? God, I know it would please you if you saved them. God, I know that if all three, all six of them came into the kingdom of God at some point, God, it, it, would, it, would, it would glorify your name. Father, if you just make six soldiers for Christ, God, would you just hallow your name on them? God, would you just create in them a love? Father, would you just save some of my boys and some of my girls that they would be kingdom-minded and spend the rest of their lives, Father, whether it's 12 years or, 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 or 82. God, they would just give themselves to build up your kingdom. Father, would you help them to see the depravity and the, and the discouragement and the danger of falling prey to the world. Father, would you help them and help them to be watchful and understand for that which they were created, Father, would they just be warriors and citizens of the kingdom of God for the rest of their life? Father, wouldn't that please you? God, then I'm trusting you for it. Father, would you, would you help them uh, to, to, to know your will? God, would you enable me to, to, try, to kind of guide them that they would be saints on earth, that they would be constantly battling against their flesh, the world, and the devil? God, would you help me to be that example? Father, would you, just, would you help them to know and help me to know how to tell them, Father, that whatever they do, as long as they do it for the glory of God, Father, I love them and they'll be acceptable in my sight because they'll be acceptable in yours. Father, would you give them bread every day? Would you give them a husband that will take care of them and love them like Christ loved the church? Father, would you just give them the daily bread that they need and the sustenance to be the instrument of your glory that they could accomplish all those first three things? Father, would you give them a house and shelter and just, and just, and just a wife, Father, that will love them with all they are and take up arms and, and aid them in the cause that God's given them, Father? Would you just sustain them for a little while that they may honor and glorify your name in all that they do? Father, would you just teach them and cultivate in them the character of Christ, Father? But they know the forgiveness such that the only that the that, that, that the, that the, the, the default now just is just overwhelming that they would just forgive one another. Father, would you just make it present with their siblings and with their mama, Father, and with their daddy and with their husband or with their wife and with their children? Why that your your name might be hallowed upon that family and this family, Father? Would you do that, God? Would you protect them from the evil one? Because I can't. God, would you protect them from the principalities and the powers that will be with them when I'm not? Father, would you teach them how to take up the helmet of salvation and the gospel of peace and, and, and gird their loins with truth? Father, would you teach them how to pray so that they can withstand the wiles of the devil? Father, for, for your kingdom, for your power, and for your glory, would you accomplish these things? You just do that on every single person you know. This church. God, would you just do that in this church? God, would your name be hallowed, Father, at your will. God, would you save souls in our community? I know it please you. God, I know it please you. So, Father, would you just work in a way to where we would just yield ourselves to you in, in, in righteousness and in faithfulness such that, that you'd hallow your name upon this congregation. Father, would you help me to cast aside all notions of any kingdom I desire to build? But Jesus Christ entered into the world to suffer for men and to die for the nations, and He deserves those, Father. And there's some in Kingsport. Would you, would you, would you save them, Lord? Like, wouldn't that please you? Wouldn't it please you today, man? If just, just, just God, if Lord, if uh, Father, if just droves came into the kingdom of God, you say, you say, like, uh, we read the book and we know that that's not going to happen. Things are degrading and degrading and degrading, and, and and you ought not to pray that. You're a fool. We know how the book ends then let me die a fool. Believing that God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. And if that's what the kingdom's like and that's what the kingdom I'm supposed to pursue and that's who Jesus Christ died for, then He is more than able to accomplish those purposes in, in this realm. 
Help us to believe in a God who, can, who is able to do that. Because that's the God of Scripture. And if I'm a fool for believing that God is able to do those things and pursuing those things, then let me be. Because I'd rather be that and die cynic. Thinking that God just saved this ball to rot. But whom Jesus Christ entered into the world to save the nations. And thus, we pursue the nations. Believing that God is able. Believing that God is able. Let us not be men of prayer who are not men of pursuit. If you're going to say a prayer, the pinnacle of hypocrisy is to beg God to do something and not believe Him. And the pinnacle of evidence to that is not to pursue it. So men, you want godly homes? Pursue it with everything you've got. Give your life. For this church to thrive, run after it. Persevere. Jesus died for the nations. If this church dies, let us die doing that. Let us. Lord, teach us to pray. God, give us our desires. What do you want, church? What do you want? Because at the end of the day, most often, that's what you get. If he didn't answer the Pharisees' prayers, oh, he did. He got exactly what he wanted. But he also answered the disciples' prayers. And he gave them what they wanted. Let us be a disciple of Jesus and not a Pharisee. Let us be a child of God and not a hypocrite. Let us know what, who God is and what he desires. And let us live and die pursuing that. And thus the world will call us fools for Christ's sake. Isn't that a great title? Isn't that a great title? If I'm remembered, let me be remembered by that. If I'm not remembered, let them remember the Christ we preach. Let's pray. God, we love and thank you and praise you for the privilege of just talking about you. Father, it's a glorious privilege that we don't deserve. Father, but help me not undermine the very will of God in doing such a thing. How deep the Father's love for us. Um, it's hard to fathom why. But we're not to get lost in the whys. We're to get lost in the what's. The facts. So help us get lost in the fact that Jesus Christ extends to a people who don't deserve grace, grace immeasurable. Father, help us to, to, to just pursue God in the Scriptures. Help us to know you more. Help us to pursue Christ and to exalt Him. Father, help us to live in the power of the Spirit as we commune with Christ through His Spirit such that it cultivates a character and a, and a, and a desire in us, Father, um, to abandon all worldly pursuits and to build up His kingdom. May it be the desire of this church and our ultimate banner. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Deliver us, Father, from temptation. Deliver us, Lord, from the evil one. For thine is the, power, the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.